Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Let me just ask that after listening to and or watching the video, if you found you enjoyed it, please do me a favor, smash that like button. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a Patreon membership. You'll find a link in the description. Now, let's dig in. Today, I want to talk about Brian Koberger. Had murder suspect Brian Koberger not waived his right to a speedy trial, he would have been in court today to begin that process. Under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, every resident has the right to a fair and speedy trial. In Idaho, criminal defendants must receive their trial within six months if they don't waive their right. Koberger opted to waive his right. This was done to give his attorneys more time to go through the evidence and plan a defense. Currently, no trial date has been set, leaving the families of the four slain students in limbo. That would be the families of Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. Even the pre-trial hearings, which were supposed to take place on September 22nd, were delayed because of an unspecified illness. Those are now scheduled for October 26, 2023, so the end of this month. Many are saying the trial will likely take place in 2024. Koberger, you may recall, was indicted by a grand jury in May of 2023 on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary. In case you don't know, a grand jury is a group of between 16 and 23 jurors. Their job is to determine whether or not there is probable cause to believe that the accused person, in this case Koberger, committed the crime. A grand jury hears evidence and listens to witness testimony before they make their decision, but only the prosecution participates in grand jury proceedings. Defense teams are not allowed to attend. In Koberger's case, his lawyers are actively trying to get his indictment on the charges thrown out. Their arguments for that will be heard during that October 26 hearing. The arguments include the following. 1. That there may have been bias among the jurors. 2. That there was a lack of evidence to warrant an indictment. 3. That the prosecution used improper evidence. 4. That the prosecution withheld evidence that could have disproved Koberger's guilt. 5 that the Idaho Constitution demands that grand juries use the same level of certainty as juries do at trial, meaning beyond reasonable doubt, instead of just probable cause. The grand jury for Koberger used probable cause. Now, just because the defense claims all of that stuff happened doesn't mean that it really did. Their job is to try and get their client off the charges and they will try anything and everything to do that. Some people liken it to throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. We don't know how the prosecution countered these defense charges because their reply is sealed. Here's what we do know about the evidence and Brian Koberger's alibi so far. The defense stated that Koberger, quote, had a habit of going for drives alone and that often he would go for drives at night. I think the same thing could be said about Ted Bundy. I'm kidding, 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 guys. 
They're saying that Koberger went on one of these late-night drives on November 12th into November 13th in 2022 when the crime occurred in Moscow, Idaho. Although that's Koberger's alibi, so far it doesn't appear as if there are any witnesses who can verify exactly where he was between, say, 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. when the four students lost their lives. So far, this is the only alibi the defense team has shared. Well, actually, I misspoke there. There is one person who can say where Brian Koberger allegedly was between those times, survivor Dylan Mortensen, if we believe that the bushy eyebrowed guy was Koberger. As for the evidence, the key piece is touch DNA that was located on the snap of a leather K-bar sheath. That DNA was tied to Brian Koberger through what's called investigative genetic genealogy or IgG for short. What that means is that the DNA found on the sheath was used on public genealogy websites to see if any of the mystery person's relatives showed up. Specialists then created a family tree, working their way from distant relatives of this mystery person to closer ones. In the end, they tied the mystery DNA first to Brian Koberger's father, Michael, then after they arrested Koberger and took a buckle swab, which is a cheek swab, from him, they matched the touch DNA finally to him. Koberger's lawyers want all the DNA records released to them. They want to see which genetic genealogy websites the investigators used. One of the reasons for that is that they want to see if anyone's privacy rights were violated. Another reason is to see exactly how that touch DNA was handled. Did anyone breach the chain of custody when transferring it from one lab to another? But according to Jeff Nye, the chief of the Idaho Attorney General, criminal law division, under Idaho discovery rules, the state, meaning the prosecution, isn't required to hand over all the IgG documents. Although Jeff Nye said that, the decision will be made by Judge John Judge, hopefully during that October 26th meeting or hearing. There's been a lot of chatter on YouTube about the strength of the DNA evidence in this case. The DNA is really the key evidence against Koberger, and so it's going to be at the center of the trial. Both sides are going to present experts to support their positions. Now, I want to share what one criminal defense attorney named Rachel Fissett told the DailyMail.com about the DNA evidence in this case. Fissett said that the DNA evidence against Koberger is, quote, pretty damning. It's so unlikely to be someone else. That's why the defense team has to pick at the method used to find the DNA evidence. So the jury might feel like this family tree method might not work, and so you should ignore the results that followed from there, end quote. Fissett said that Koberger's attorneys are having to do this because, quote, they don't have much. I think what Fissett means there is the defense doesn't have much in their arsenal to try and show that their client is innocent. 
Fisted said that the defense likely saw this questioning of the family tree method as a necessary step because juries tend to find DNA evidence fairly credible and they tend to give it a lot of weight. Kohlberger's attorneys called the genetic genealogy used by the prosecutors, quote, a bizarrely complex DNA tree experiment, end quote. But per Fisset, the defense's tactics reek of desperation. Let's remember, the defense doesn't have to prove that Koberger is innocent. It's on the prosecution to show that he's guilty. All the defense has to do is show that there's reasonable doubt to believe Koberger committed the crime. Here's how the DNA from the leather sheath was tested in this case. First, it was entered into CODIS, a database that has the DNA of previous felony offenders. There were no hits in CODIS, so then investigators hired a private lab to search the DNA against publicly available genealogy databases similar to 23andMe and Ancestry.com. With the info they found, the investigators began building a family tree of hundreds of relatives. It's like that show, So You Want to Know Who You Are? Only Brian Koberger got it all for free. Now he knows all of his relatives. This massive exercise is what led the FBI to send a tip to law enforcement in Idaho and Washington to investigate one Brian Koberger. Next, law enforcement in Pennsylvania nabbed some trash from Koberger's parents' home. DNA found on a piece of garbage matched the DNA found at the crime scene to the father of the mystery person. The match indicated that Michael Koberger was the father of the mystery person whose DNA was found on the sheath. Voila! The DNA was linked to Brian Koberger. Here's how the prosecutors described the DNA match. They said, quote, the profile is at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen if the defendant, meaning Brian Koberger, is the source than if an unrelated individual randomly selected from the general population is the source. An octillion is a number equal to a one followed by 27 zeros. That is a very strong match. But in their attempt to defend their client, Koberger's attorneys are attacking this evidence. They're questioning the reliability of the genealogical mapping, meaning the building of that family tree. They're also demanding that prosecutors show all their work on the DNA. They even suggested that Koberger's DNA could have been planted by an investigator. Now, I find this planting notion absurd. Here's why. Why would Koberger be standing in his parents' kitchen, separating his garbage from the rest of his family's? Remember, he was found in the family kitchen wearing gloves while separating his trash from the rest of the family's when law enforcement agents broke into the Koberger home to arrest him. Even Koberger's sister, allegedly felt that her brother's behavior was odd and that he could possibly be the person who committed the crime. The defense also submitted an affidavit by a DNA expert named Dr. Leah Larkin, who explained that at-home genealogy tests, you know, the ones where you spit into the plastic tube, are not as reliable 
as tests conducted by specialized labs. Larkin said, quote, a poor quality kit might have too few matches or it just might have phantom matches that are not real measures of relationship, end quote. But criminal defense attorney Rachel Fissett said that Dr. Larkin's argument is undermined by the fact that prosecutors secured a direct statistical match from the leather sheath to Brian Koberger after doing their genealogical tree mapping. But then let's go back to the defense. The defense is saying that there's no good explanation for why DNA from the victims was not found in Koberger's apartment, office, or car, which is a good point. Every former homicide detective or forensic pathologist that I've heard talk about the case on YouTube has said that Koberger's car, even though he meticulously scrubbed it clean, should have some specks of blood from one or more of the victims. But I think we have to remember that Koberger was a graduate level criminology student. If anyone could figure out how not to get blood from victims in his car or house, it was him. He could have used a multiple-pronged approach, such as lay plastic tarps over the car seats, strip down outside the car before getting in after the crime, stash the dirty clothes in several garbage bags, maybe have a jug of water on hand to wash his face and hands, and then, only once he was sure he had everything off of him and everything contained in those garbage bags, and only then get into the Elantra. There are ways to do this if you're meticulous. Think Dexter. It was around 4.25 a.m. when the perpetrator left the crime scene. Most people were inside sleeping at that hour in the area, so there was little chance of that person being spotted. We know there were still some students running around at like 3.30, maybe even 4 a.m., but if he parked behind the victim's shared house, say one street behind it, and if he maybe left his clothes, change of clothes, jug of water, and the garbage bags perhaps in the tree line behind the crime scene house, he could have pulled off this switcheroo, in my opinion. Here's another idea. Maybe he did have somebody else driving his car. Maybe he didn't even get in his car after the crime. Now, that is pure speculation, and it doesn't really follow Occam's razor, in my opinion. It also wouldn't really get Koberger off the charges. It would just mean that he and another individual collaborated on the crime. The defense also brought up three sources of unidentified male DNA, two of which were found inside the crime scene house and one outside of it on a glove. It sounds like prosecutors, once they had their very strong DNA match to Koberger, decided not to go through the whole investigative genetic genealogy testing for those three sources of DNA. I'm sure it takes a lot of time and money to subject DNA to all these things. Koberger's lawyers are arguing that investigators allowed themselves to be penned in by the genealogical results against Koberger. I mean, if you consider how strong the DNA match was to Brian Koberger, you can understand why the prosecutors maybe wouldn't bother taking the time and money to test the other DNA. But then again, you could argue that maybe Koberger had that help, like I said, driving the car. 
But then there had to have been another way for someone to come and pick him up or another car parked somewhere for him to get into. Maybe one or more of those sources of still unidentified DNA were the culprits. But then again, survivor Dylan Mortensen described only seeing one person walking out of the house after the crime, right? Oh la la, these cases are complicated. It reminds me so much of that movie, Wag the Dog. Have any of you seen that movie? If you haven't seen it, the film centers around a spin doctor and a Hollywood producer who fabricates a war in Albania to distract voters from a presidential scandal. To me, defense attorneys' jobs, especially in cases where there is strong evidence against their client, is to spin the evidence to create that reasonable doubt. They are thus, in some cases, spin doctors. We won't know how much weight the DNA evidence in this case has until the trial takes place and jurors decide whether or not Koberger is guilty. I keep thinking that it doesn't matter what any experts say right now. It only matters how the experts come across during the trial to each and every one of the jurors. Those jurors will hold all the keys in the end. Speaking of the end, until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.